This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, January 20th, 2010. I'm Caleb Brown. In the year since taking office, President Obama's trade agenda has been decidedly more punitive and protectionist than previous administrations, including Democratic ones. Cato's Dan Eikenson is author of a new Cato trade policy analysis, Made on Earth, How Global Economic Integration Renders Trade Policy Obsolete. Over the last several decades, the world has changed considerably. Uh, That period has been characterized by by barrier erosion, political barriers, the fall of the wall, the opening of China to the West. Economic barriers have come down in the form of uh, trade agreements. Uh, Physical barriers have been overcome. Uh, We now have container shipping. We have have had revolutions in communications. Uh, There has been what what has been characterized as, as the death of distance. And that has really led to uh, tremendous growth globally over the past several decades. We see a proliferation of of cross-border investment uh, and transnational production and supply chains that really speak to the need to update our, our, our policies and our ideas about how the world actually works. The factory floor is no longer contained within four walls and one roof. Uh, it's no longer our producers against their producers, or us against them. However, our trade policy seems to uh, reflect that anachronistic view. I mean, it's never really been the case that it's us against them, but it's less so the case now. Um, so we, we really need to to update our, our assumptions. And, uh, and, you know, right now, policy conflates producer interests with some view of the national interest, some conception of the national interest. But in fact, you know, our economy is producers, importers, retailers, accountants, financiers, scientists. Uh, and when you go to bat for producers, you, uh, in many cases, uh, handicap other entities in our economy. Why has U.S. policy not been able to keep pace with uh, global economic integration? I think it's sort of a matter of of habit. We have certain interests in the United States that have captured the policy apparatus. Domestic producers, they they know how to lobby. Uh, They, uh, it's easier, I think, for the media to convey stories about trade uh, according to a scoreboard mentality. You know, Team America against the world. We see it to this very day uh, when we talk about trade disputes, when we talk about the trade deficit, uh, you know, exports uh, are good and imports are bad. And as a result, it, 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 it uh, lends itself to a very oversimplified and, in fact, wrong view of, of the world. And that idea has been abandoned many hundreds of years ago. That is, imports are bad, exports are good. Uh, and, but but the, the basic idea that if you are relatively better at doing something than someone else, that maybe that's what you should focus on to free up a lot of resource and resources and create a lot of efficiencies. Sure. Uh, I, I would offer, and in the paper that I recently did, uh, Made on Earth, uh, I make the point that we need to take a, a new look at comparative advantage. Uh, under Ricardo's presentation, we had the Portuguese winemaker and the English cloth maker producing uh, what they produce best and exchanging surpluses. In today's world, I think we can think of comparative advantage in terms of production functions on the supply chain, on the global supply chain. So uh, 
Uh, right now, Americans uh, occupy the upper ends of this supply chain. Uh, we produce higher value-added products. We provide the scientists, the research, the engineering to design things like iPods and other uh, technological goods. And we rely on labor in lower uh, cost markets to assemble products to produce some of the lower, uh, the, low, the less sophisticated components. But there is a complementarity to our relationship, and uh, that's something that isn't reflected in policy. We, we have policy that is still predicated on us versus them, uh, but in fact, we don't even know who we are and who they are. Uh, the largest U.S. steel producer uh, is an, a majority Indian-owned company with headquarters in Europe. The largest German steel company, ThyssenKrupp, is in the process of building a $3.7 billion production facility in Alabama. U.S. steel, iconic U.S. steel, accounts for 25% of its revenue from sales of steel it produces in Serbia and Slovakia. And just yesterday in the, in, the, in the newspaper, there was an article about GM's success in China. While it lost money again in 2009 in the United States, it's going gangbusters in China. So do we really have national claims to companies? Well, GM's example might not be great because we, the taxpayers, own a majority of it. But uh, in, in, in industry after industry, it is really becoming much more difficult to distinguish any national identity for, for these companies. And policymakers, for their part, when they talk about the U.S. auto industry, they're just talking about uh, companies GM, Chrysler, and Ford. Th that's right. When, in fact, the foreign nameplates that operate in the United States employ nearly half a million Americans uh, in states across the country, and they contribute to the tax base, they hire Americans, they transact with other U.S. companies. There's a focus on the trade account, Particular, in particular, the trade deficit that we have with China. But in fact, uh, most uh, if, if the typical container of cargo from China uh, contains about 50% Chinese value added. The other half is value added in Japan, Australia, Taiwan, and the United States. Uh, the iPod example is, is just outstanding. Uh, the iPod enters the United States uh, as a, an import worth $150. So it goes toward our deficit, $150. But in fact, only about 4 or $5 of that is Chinese value-added. Most of it is, is value-added from, from Japan and the United States. And ultimately, when Apple sells those, those iPods in the United States for $300, that $150 markup, most of it is, is enjoyed by Apple. Uh, as well as some retailers, but Apple, which is able to reinvest and employ more American engineers and, and higher skilled workers. And that is the, the key to uh, competing in the global economy. If there's a fundamental disconnect between the ability of the U.S. government, that is policymakers, to keep up, even setting all of the public choice problems aside, if there's that fundamental disconnect between their ability to keep up with uh, changing global supply chains and those supply chains' ability to adapt and shift and, and change at a very rapid pace, well, what hope is there for uh, U.S. policy to keep up with, with uh, the marketplace? Yeah, we're going to lose out. If we don't have policy that acknowledges and reflects the fact that we operate in a globalized economy, investment's going to flow elsewhere. Human capital is going to go elsewhere. Uh, every country in the world is somewhere on this continuum in the, in the global supply chain. They're either providing lower value-added assembly or higher value-added engineering services, which is what, what we do here. 
the developing countries want to get to the top. Uh, we in America want to stay at the top. And the way to do that is to have good policies, policies that reduce frictions, uh, that, that, that have minimal or no uh, trade barriers, that, have, uh, that invite investment in infrastructure, and encourage people that encourage high-skilled workers to want to live in your country and, and to be able to operate successfully there. So that, that really speaks to a trade policy that doesn't go to bat for specific entities, but which removes obstacles and is inviting of investment and human capital. Dan Eikenson is Associate Director of the Cato Institute's Center for Trade Policy Studies. He's author of a new Cato trade policy analysis, Made on Earth, How Global Economic Integration Renders Trade Policy Obsolete. It's available for download at cato.org.